I'm your host, Michelle King, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Last week, Kamala Harris made history on Saturday when she became America's first female, first Black, and first South Asian vice president-elect, representing a new face of political power. The Californian senator's history-making win also represents the millions of women in the demographics often overlooked, historically underrepresented, and systematically ignored, who are now the recipients of that new power for the first time in America's 200-plus year history. On this special episode, my former UN Women colleague, Selena Shurish, will be interviewing me on how we can get more women like Kamala into positions of power, and more importantly, how we keep them there. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm good, Selena. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on this subject. What I first wanted to ask you is what prompted you to want to do this special episode this week? You know, when I saw Kamala Harris, you know, become the vice president-elect and the way the whole world reacted, I just didn't think it made sense for us to kind of gloss over it. You know, we have a lot of incredible leaders and men and women who are really innovating and taking action to create equality both in the world and in workplaces and every week we get to feature these incredible people and I feel so lucky but this week I thought it was really important to talk about the challenges specifically that women leaders face and why it is that getting women into leadership positions is one thing but valuing them when they're there is quite another and there's actually actions that all of us can take to ensure that you know while Kamala Harris is in her leadership role, that we're supporting her and that we're paying attention to the barriers that she's likely to face and that we're calling them out. You know, this is about our opportunity now globally to value a black woman leader. And I think it's really important that, you know, that we do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely agree. I think you also have some really interesting thoughts on the glass ceiling and that there is, in fact, no such thing as a glass ceiling. It's really curious to hear your thought on that. Yeah, you know, this is something that really bugs me, right? This idea that women and men have the same careers and that, you know, all women need to do is break through some glass ceiling as they approach leadership positions and then everything will be fine, right? And so we see this in a lot of the media reports around um, Kamala Harris's, you know, appointment. Well, she's broken the barriers, she's broken the glass ceiling, now she's in a leadership role. And what's really interesting is that was very quickly followed up with media articles that commented on her appearance, that commented on um, how she dresses, that commented on, you know, how her looks are a really important part of this and how she needs to be empathetic. And it was just such a funny follow-up because it really demonstrated this idea that the glass ceiling is a bit of a myth. There's not one glass ceiling. Women face multiple barriers throughout their careers. In fact, in my book, I shared 17 of them that women encounter 
you know, women have three distinct phases of their careers and they experience working life very differently from men because of the barriers that they encounter. And every barrier, you know, is experienced differently depending on your individual identity. So as a black Southeast Asian woman, you know, Kamala Harris is going to not only experience sexism, but also racism or what we call gendered racism, right? And so the barriers are really compounded by difference. And I think it's really important for people to acknowledge that once you're in a leadership position, you really define the standard for what good looks like. Mm -hmm. And it creates tremendous challenges every day for women leaders just to navigate environments where, you know, they are defying what good looks like for leaders. Because when we think of leaders, we think of that Don Draper ideal standard. You know, anyone who's been listening to the show knows my take on you know, what the ideal standard is in organizations and quite literally when it comes to this presidency, you know, we've got Don in the literal sense. And so, you know, she's defying that standard. She's leading in a different way already. We've seen through her tweets and communications, this empathy, this democratic style, this collaborative style, which is much more transformational than, you know, the traditional transactional approach. And so this is really the key is starting to understand not only how women experience leadership in a different way, Mm -hmm. but also on average, how women lead in a different way. Yeah. And you talk about, you you briefly mentioned at the beginning that obviously women's careers unfold differently from men. And why do women leaders face different challenges, do you think? You know, one of the, the main reasons for this is because organizations, irrespective of what your organization is, are really hardwired around this ideal leader, right? So typically when we think of it, we think of the 1950s Don Draper, if any of you've seen Mad Men, that's the ideal standard we hold for leaders, not just in terms of demographic attributes like being white, male, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied, but more importantly in terms of all the behaviors that go with that. So somebody who's dominant, assertive, aggressive, competitive, and willing to make work sort of the number one priority, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the standard for what good looks like in organizations. And so the problem is for women leaders, there's almost no right way to be a woman leader at work because simply leading, you know, you have to conform to those Don Draper ideals. But in society, we have standards for women Uh, which is to be meek, mild, unassuming, you know, almost grateful for even being allowed in the leadership room, right? And so this is incredibly challenging as you're faced with this trade-off between being likable and engaging in those stereotypically feminine um, behaviors or being seen as competent, right, and engaging in sort of the Don Draper behaviors. And so because of that, for women, there's a huge number of challenges they face throughout their careers just in terms of how to show up, how to lead, how to behave in a way that navigates that double bind between the feminine and the masculine, right, in terms of the ideal. And so for women, um, you know, trying to define leadership on their own terms can be incredibly challenging. And as they progress throughout their careers, they're really three distinct phases, whereas for men, there's really just one experience of working life, right, which is stereotypically the meritocracy, right? You ascend up the leadership level, up the hierarchy, you do a good job, you get rewarded and you advance. Whereas for women, you know, they start out really, really believing that workplaces are going to function a lot like school life and they're going to get rewarded um, for working hard. And that doesn't happen early on precisely because they don't fit the standard for what good looks like. So they're penalized, their performance is judged way more harshly. They have to really overperform. And this is particularly apparent for um, racial and ethnic minority women who face sort of that gendered racism. You've got to work twice as hard. And then what we see is, you know, as women start to realize their workplace doesn't actually work for everybody in the same way, and there are these challenges, that's when they normally are getting closer to managerial level. And for a lot of women, that's the point that they choose to have children. 
And that's where you really start to see things unravel, right? Because now women are never as far away from the Don Draper ideal as when you're a mother. And so we see a whole bunch of barriers women experience there in terms of being seen as less competent, less committed to their careers. I mean, they quite literally paid less for undertaking the same work. And that's something that's known as the motherhood penalty. And that's just at managerial level. And then as women approach the final phase of their careers, which is the leadership phase, you know, we start to see a lot of challenges unravel. For women leading, it can be incredibly difficult to define that on your own terms, as I mentioned, but also because of the ways women are undermined in organizations um, as leaders, you know, we devalue the contributions of women leaders. We judge them more harshly. We undermine them. There's a lot of behaviors that take place in organizations that are just not acceptable. And so that's really, you know, the way in which women's careers unfold differently from men's. And it's important for us to acknowledge this because what my research has found is that a lot of people are in denial that this even happens. And yet we have, you know, study after study showing these different lived experiences of working life and then you know, we can't fix something if we're blind to it we have to see it and we have to acknowledge it and so that's really the starting point for this so you kind of shared some of the specific challenges that women leaders face in accessing quality leadership opportunities what can we do to fix this specifically you know, I think it's really important to get to know the barriers women leaders face, right? So a couple of them that I just wanted to share that I think people be really, really interested in, you know, something as simple as the words we use, right, to describe women leaders. So there's a fantastic clip where Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister of Australia, actually talked about this in Parliament, the labels that were used to describe her as a woman leader, things like bitch, Ice Maiden, you know, and that even extends to sort of what are deemed nice terms for women like sweetheart or dear or princess. All of those terms are really used in a way that devalues women as leaders. And so I think, you know, this is a really key barrier we need to pay attention to with world leaders in terms of how we describe them, because the term for this is stereotypical typecasting. When we use these labels, and we call women leaders, you know, bitch or ice queen or any of those terms, what happens is that really frames the way that we view that woman leader. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very, very difficult for the woman leader to do anything to change that perception of it. And I have a great example of this where I was in sort of a group of men and we were talking about the capabilities of one of the women leaders on the team. And she wasn't in the room. We're saying how great she was. And then one of the men said, yeah, but she's a real ball buster. I never heard that term before. And I was quite shocked. And it was in that moment that I realized, you know, and then all the other men nodded. And I realized in that moment just how hard it would be for her to sort of shake that off, right? So the words we use to describe women leaders are really important because they frame how we then see her, how we rate her capability, and the way in which we actually endorse support and amplify her competence. And so we really have to pay attention to the words that we use. And, you know, for black women in particular, this is compounded by, you know, stereotypes like the angry black woman. You know, for Kamala Harris, for example, there's almost no right way for her to be assertive or dominant without potentially triggering that stereotype. So I think for anybody who's on social media, who's paying attention to the articles and the way in which we talk about women leaders, you know, if you want to support women who are in leadership roles, call it out. When you see any label being used that in some way tries to frame women in the stereotypical 
terms like ice queen or any of that, call it out because, you know, it's by acknowledging that this is something that society does to devalue women that we can really start to take action. So that's one example. And I think the other one that's really important because we're already seeing this play out right now is the identity conflict. So one of the challenges women leaders face is there's quite literally no right way to be a leader and to look like the part, right? Because we don't look like Don Draper. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful study that I share in my book that talks about how researchers found women evaluated not just on their performance, but also on their appearance. So they have to pay a lot of attention to balancing likability, so being feminine and coming across as feminine and how they dress, but also competence and looking like Don, right? And so the study goes on to really show that, you know, if women want to be perceived as both competent and warm, the ideal look for them is no makeup, loose hair, jewelry, and trousers. So matching the standard is one way for women to kind of navigate being penalized. So in the fix, the women's school of thought, you know, we tell women, all the ways they need to change to be seen as competent, capable, the, the lean in idea, you know, you would say, well, just dress like that, just conform to that. But that really, you know, that standard really only works for a small number of women. It assumes that everybody has the same hair type, that everybody, you know, is comfortable dressing that way. And it takes away, it robs us of our individual identity. So I disagree with that kind of philosophy. And I think what we really need is to create an environment where women can show up just as they are in whatever they're comfortable in. And we judge them based on their competence because that's what happens with men. So if you think of somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he can wear a hoodie and still be seen as competent and still be seen as a leader. Well, you know, we need to judge women in the same way. And I think some of that's happening. So we've seen Kamala Harris wear sneakers. You know, we've seen yeah. some of that happen. But I think the challenge is just the focus in the media on her appearance that's already started to happen, talking about why it's really important that she's an attractive woman. You know, articles like that, we need to call that out because, quite frankly, it's just BS. And the problem is, is it devalues women. What it's saying is that her performance is not enough. We also need to judge her based on how attractive she is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the longest time, women have been valued solely based on how attractive they are. And that is really because we don't value the contributions that women make. And so I really encourage anybody, you know, if you're seeing this play out, call it out for the sort of misogynistic messaging that it is, um, because that's the starting point for making people aware. you've touched on women and how harshly they're judged on their appearance especially in the media why is this that women face so much backlash and isolation especially women leaders you know inequality is actually really straightforward i think there's so many studies on it there's so many different ways of looking at it there's so many different feminist theories but the bottom line is we just value women and femininity as less than so, you know, being male and masculine, all the attributes associated with that are deemed as more valuable. And so the problem in terms of how this plays out is that because we don't see women as competent and we don't value women's competence in the same way that we do men, women have to overperform, they have to have more degrees. You know, there's that great Hewlett-Packard study that shows, you know, that women have to have about 110% of every attribute on a job description before they're considered as good as sort of a male candidate has about 60% of the attributes, right? And so the problem is we just value men and women differently. And so for women, the value, because we deem them as less competent, we place greater value on how they look. 
So for women, you know, their appearance is much more important than what they say. And as a result, you know, we just judge women and men differently. And increasingly, you know, for women, you've got to show up in just the right way, because if you're too feminine, your competence will be seen as less than. So it's incredibly, incredibly challenging for women. It's that trade-off between the likability and the competence because society as a whole just doesn't value um, women and women leaders. So that's why I say, you know, what we want to do is get away from any comments about appearance. And, you know, the general rule of thumb that I ask of everybody listening to this is when you see an article or a post or a comment, just ask yourself, is this something we would be saying about a man? or a male leader? Is this a comment that we would use to describe a male leader? Is this a standard we would judge a male leader against? Is this headline something you would ever see Joe Biden being associated with? And if the answer is no, then call it out because it's only through us, you know, highlighting the barriers and highlighting the inherent sexism and racism that's there that, you know, we have an opportunity to solve it. And I just also want to say, you know, in terms of the racism side of it, this is even harder for black women to conform to the standards of what good looks like from a beauty standpoint, because that is racist as well, right? So we see typically beauty standards are associated with white women and pale skin, and we see this globally. And so the problem is, you know, there's really no right way to manage your appearance as a black woman. You know, you can do everything just right. You can wear the trousers and the jewelry and the, you know, conform to what that study showed and still not be seen as competent because society just devalues women leaders. So it's up to each of us to call it out and also, you know, amplify the contributions of women leaders, you know, call out the contributions they are making and the skills they do have and the competence and the way they're displaying that, you know, that's how we make the competence side louder than the appearance side. Definitely. You've also talked about the intersection between race and gender here and I have to ask, what are your thoughts on tokenism? Why are women leaders often treated like tokens? You know, in my book, I really talk about the shift from tokenism to trophyism. Um, so what we've seen in recent years is this push from boards and from companies to have greater diversity and inclusion and demographic diversity has really resulted in organizations advancing women really quickly into leadership positions. So they have, you know, quotas, which anyone who's read my book knows I'm very much against, and they've got recruitment targets, and we just cut, copy, paste, you know, minority candidates or underrepresented candidates into those roles as a way to demonstrate that our organization is committed to diversity and inclusion. Well, getting women into leadership positions is one thing. Valuing them is quite another. And so I ask every you know leader who's advancing women into those leadership positions, how are you valuing them? How are you supporting them? How are you creating an environment where they're going to thrive? Do you know the barriers that they're likely to encounter? What are you doing as a leader to remove those barriers? You know, research finds that the most effective way to support women leaders' advancement is not to cut, copy, and paste, but is to, for every male leader, to identify two to three capable women who they can support groom, advise, and slowly advance into their position when they leave. And when leaders, male leaders in particular, do that, the organization is much more likely to accept that woman as a competent and sort of capable leader. And so that is probably the single most important thing every male leader can do. And it's it's just a way of really endorsing a female candidate. And ironically, if we think about this presidency cycle, right, 
it's really important for Kamala Harris actually that this has happened and played out in this way because now she gets an opportunity to demonstrate her competence and actually it sets her up really well for becoming the president in the future. And, you know, I wish women didn't have to spend that much time proving themselves, but this is the nature of the environment that we're in. And so the most effective thing every male leader can do is not just sponsor, but advocate for, you know, two to three women who are on your team. And even if they don't land up getting your role, the fact that you've done that has created this commitment internally to not only them, but also their competence, right? So we're valuing women. So tokenism really plays out where that doesn't happen. And we put women in leadership roles. They're not set up for success. Men get very, very frustrated by this. They think the organization's just putting women in there, you know, as a token to be seen, to be committed to DNI. Women who are in those roles, it's incredibly challenging. They're devalued on a daily basis. There's a huge drop in confidence and they're much less likely to be successful in the long run. The triple challenge with it, though, is that you then have this issue where organizations kind of hold sort of um, particularly racial and ethnic minority women up as the trophy, right? So this this is their example of their commitment to diversity and inclusion. And not just that, but the expectation is that these women are meant to advance equality within the organization. So the expectation is that they need to pull up all racial and ethnic minority women within the organization and kind of solve the DNI issue. So you clumped with this issue of being put into a tokenistic role and nobody taking accountability for the lived experience and the barriers and removing them, whilst also expecting you to solve an equality that you've had no hand in creating. And so for women who are in these roles, I ask the men who work with them to really think about what are you doing every day to tackle inequality and the lived experience? So what barriers do exist in your organization? Are you paying attention to them? Are you amplifying the women leaders you're working with? What are you doing to remove the barriers? You know, that's what needs to start happening. And how are you as a male leader taking accountability every single day to advance a culture of equality? you know, where people feel like they can be themselves and they're going to be valued for that. And if you can't answer that question, you're not creating an environment where difference will thrive. Why do you think that women leaders like Kamala Harris represent the future of leadership? Oh, I love this question. Um, So women leaders do represent the future of leadership and i'm not saying that to exclude men i'm saying that to really point out that men need equality more than women do and so the reason for this is there's a great study that i undertook as part of my research into my book that really looked at you know the attributes that men and women have and the skills that are required in the future world of work and so i asked about 750 people you know what are the attributes you believe are required in the future world of work out of a list of 20 give me a top five and so the answer was adapting to change managing people achieving results demonstrating emotional intelligence and demonstrating resilience and then i said great Out of, you know, again, the list of 20, what are the top five attributes that women have? And what are the top five attributes that men have today? And the sample was pretty evenly split between men and women. Both men and women said that women have four out of the five attributes required in the future world of work and that men have one. And the reason for that is it actually makes sense. When we think about the Don Draper ideal, right? That really served everybody back in the 1950s when organizations were much more predictable. They were largely sort of in the industrial era. It made sense to have a command and control approach to work. It made sense to have a hierarchy. 
you know, that style of leadership made sense for then. It doesn't make sense today. Um, and COVID's really highlighted that, right? You need leaders who can connect and then lead. You need leaders who are empathetic, who are democratic, who can delegate, who can coach. And that is a transformational style of leadership. And that's what we associate with women. So being able to adapt to change, manage people, lead inclusive environments, demonstrate emotional intelligence, demonstrate resilience. Those are the attributes that women have that really serve them not only today, but increasingly in the future world of work, we're seeing things like, you know, more disruption. So not just sort of pandemics, but things like AI, robotics, nanotechnology, the Internet of Things. That's going to change up to 60 percent of all jobs globally in the next three to five years. And so COVID's given us a little bit of a taste of the challenges we're likely to encounter, but more importantly, the types of leaders who are going to see us through into the future. And so, you know, women are the future of leadership. They represent the future of leadership. But that's not to say that we suddenly need to ditch, you know, the transactional approach to leading. My message is actually what we want are ambidextrous leaders. So that's leaders who, depending on what the situation requires, could be a little bit assertive, could be dominant, could be empathetic, could be democratic. We want to give people the freedom to display the right behavior depending on what the situation requires. And so, you know, that's why men need this freedom more than women do. And they really need an opportunity to display some of these different attributes because right now that's what our environment is requesting. Thank you. Great answer. <laughs> You've shared some really interesting thoughts and evidence on inclusion, on real inclusion and actions that we can all take, men and women. As a final question, what is the one action you think everyone can take to support women in leadership positions? I think, so I'm going to give everybody three actions and anyone who's listened to any of my talks will know these reactions, but I think it's particularly relevant today. So the first is, you know, if you want to champion and support women leaders, particularly like Kamala Harris, my message is start to get to know the barriers that she's likely to encounter. So build your awareness and build your understanding of what the challenges she's likely to face, right? So that's the starting point. Get to know the barriers, understand how they play out for women leaders. And then the second piece is, you know, as part of that whole awareness bit, Deepen your understanding so that you can pay attention to when the barriers happen. So when you see articles on her appearance, when you see that she's being judged way more harshly than maybe a Mike Pence would ever be judged, you know, when you see this playing out, call it out. That allows you to take action because you've developed the understanding. So awareness is key, you know, read up on the barriers, get to know them. There are great books out there like The Memo by my friend Mind Hearts. Um, you know, you could even read a book by Eve Rodsky on the challenges women face, balancing sort of leadership and the invisible load at home. You know, really start to get to know the different barriers and then use that understanding to pay attention to how this is playing out. And then the third piece is taking action. So every single one of us can be advocates for equality by simply calling out the barriers, amplifying, you know, women leaders and, and their performance, really holding people accountable, particularly on our social media channels, for the way in which we are supporting, endorsing, rewarding, advancing women in leadership positions. You know, this is our opportunity to support a black southeast asian woman world leader and it's really exciting and i think you know we have to all take action to do that so i encourage everybody to do the work 
and to be an ally and much more than that, to be a success partner to women. And this is, you know, my message also to white women. If you want to support women of color in your organization, you have to get to know the barriers that they face. What white women want from men in organizations, they have to be prepared to give to all women and particularly racial and ethnic minority women. How many white women today know the barriers that racial and ethnic minority women face? If you don't know them, then you're not going to be able to take the right action at the right time to be an ally. And so I really encourage everybody to do the work, get to know the challenges, and then show up in the moments that matter. Thank you so much. I think we've all got some homework to do. Thanks, Alina. Appreciate it. hope today's episode encourages everyone listening to be vigilant in examining the messages you're given about women leaders. It is up to all of us to not only advance women into leadership positions, but importantly, to value them when they get there. Before you go, just a quick reminder that you can get a copy of my book, The Fix, or the electronic or audible version from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, or at all major retailers. In reading The Fix, you'll learn how gender inequality works, what the 17 most common barriers are that all women face, and how gender inequality creates challenges to men's fulfillment of work. Most importantly, you'll learn what we can do to remove these obstacles, and how we can begin to make workplaces work for everyone. So get your copy today and let me know what you think by leaving a review on Amazon. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.